Hi again. <laughs> so good to see you guys. Welcome. I didn't welcome you when I first started talking, but welcome. It's good to have you guys all here, no matter who you are, no matter where you're at in your own faith journey, we are glad that you're here. And our desire is that we would all see Jesus clearly as he truly is, that we would all receive him, that we would all rest in him. And this morning, we have a psalm that I think is going to really help us do that. Um, This is a psalm as we continue to walk through the psalms this summer. This is a psalm that is building on the same storyline that we've been in, which is David and Absalom. So Absalom, David's son, is trying to kill him. And Absalom's an interesting figure because you can understand why he's so angry. You can understand why he wants to take vengeance. He, at this point, hates David because he sees David as the cause of so much evil that has happened to him, to his sister, and in their whole family system. And David, in response, doesn't know how to act. He doesn't know how to feel. Because he has received the promise of God. He knows that he is the anointed king. And yet his son wants to kill him. And seems to have convinced the majority of Israel to kill him. And so Absalom is trying to usurp the throne. He's chasing after David. And David is ashamed. He's hiding. He's on the run. Last week and the week before, there were two psalms that were talking about sleeping and laying down to sleep. And so this psalm is about waking up. And I wanted to share something with you to kind of help us before we read the psalm. I want to help us kind of get into the context of it a little bit. And so there is a book that was written that is inspired by this story. It's called Absalom, Absalom by William Faulkner. Maybe you had to read it, maybe not. It's hard to read, so (laughs) read it at your own peril. But it is kind of heralded as one of the great novels that has ever been produced. And it's because it's really inspired by this story that speaks to something so powerful in our human experience. It speaks to what happens when family systems become dysfunctional. What happens generationally? How does one person's sin impact and spread? And then what do you do about that? What can you do about it? And so the book, Absalom, Absalom, is written in the context of Reconstruction, after the Civil War. And it's written from a perspective of someone who's living kind of in the middle of the 20th century, and he is the descendant of slave owners. And he's come to see that as a great evil. And he's living his life. His life becomes about trying to make amends for that, trying to undo it, trying to create and build some good but it's not a hopeful story. It's a really depressing story. I'm going to help you see how depressing it is by reading this. So this is the main character, and he's kind of talking to somebody about and lamenting 
as he has been thwarted by his own ineffectiveness at building something good, and then by recognizing that other people are also trying to do this, but they can't do it either. And so he's talking about trying to do something good, trying to redeem bad situations, trying to make meaning and purpose and beauty and goodness in this world. And he says this, you get born and you try this and you don't know why, only you keep trying it. And you are born at the same time with a lot of other people, all mixed up with them, like trying to, having to, move your arms and legs with strings. Only the same strings are hitched to all the other arms and legs, and the others are all trying, and they don't know why either, except that the strings are all in one another's way, like five or six people all trying to make a rug on the same loom. Only each one wants to weave his own pattern into the rug, and it can't matter. You know that. Or the ones that set up the loom would have arranged things a little better. And yet it must matter because you keep on trying or having to keep on trying. And then all of a sudden, it's over. So that's William Faulkner's take, or at least that character's take, on the human experiment and what life is all about. David is feeling that. He went to sleep with a prayer. He went to sleep in peace, knowing that the Lord makes him dwell in safety. But if you've ever been in a really bad situation and then go to sleep, the next morning when you wake up, man, you do not want to be awake because you're still in that situation. Nothing has changed. You closed your eyes and slept, David, but your son is still coming for you. And so Psalm 5 is a meditation. It's what David remembers about being asleep in the cave and waking up still in the cave. And it's a psalm about trying to cry out to God in the midst of that. And it's about the next step in an impossible situation. So I'll go ahead and read it for us. This is Psalm 5, the whole psalm. To the choir master for the flutes, a psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I... Through the abundance of your steadfast love will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. For there is no truth in their mouth. 
Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for how it encourages us that you see the evil of this world. You see things that should not be. And Lord, you have a plan. You have a plan that you are patiently, that you have been patiently working out, working into history since the beginning of time. And so Lord, for us, for all of your people, we ask that you would help us to see that in the midst of pain, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of oppression, in the midst of witnessing great evil, We ask that you would help us to be patient for you, that you would ground us in your promises, and that you would help us respond by calling out for you, Lord. We ask that you would help us do that here this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this psalm, it really has kind of two parts that develop two times. The two parts, you can kind of, the verses one through three are really kind of the introduction or the preamble, so that I'm not talking about that, but I'm looking at verses four through six as kind of developing the enemies. He's describing what it means to be against him. David is Yahweh's anointed king, so to be against David is to be against Yahweh, and he's describing what that looks like. And then verse seven and eight He describes this place, and God's there, and peace is there, and beauty is there, and rest is there, and goodness is there, and nothing else is there but that. And then verse 9 and 10, he goes back, and he shows you how the enemies of God are the exact opposite of that. Instead of truth, there's lies. Instead of life, there's death. Instead of blessing, there's pain. And then verse 11 and 12 bring us back into that place. And so that's how this psalm is functioning. It's kind of jumping between two worlds. The world that we live in, that we all know is infected by evil, that we all experience pain and death and suffering and lies, And then the dwelling place of the Lord in his temple that's perfect, that's holy. And it was reminding me a little bit of um, a counseling technique, and it's kind of been popularized. Athletes do this, and it's called different things, but I know it as a guided visualization or meditation. And it's where you kind of try and block everything out and focus on something. And usually, 
the best ones always tell you to focus on a place. So imagine a place in your mind and start to think about the details of that place. It's a place of great peace. It's a place of rest. It's a place where nothing can harm you, where nothing bad happens. And so as I was kind of learning how to do this and in training for counseling, we had to do this. And the place that I would imagine was my grandma's house. Because I went there as a child so many times. It's this little quaint cabin in the mountains. And my grandma is a master of like taking care of a place and bringing a place to life, especially for kids. And so there's like a fairy garden. There's like a David versus Goliath, like kind of like obstacle course set up. And I have so many good memories there. And I could just picture myself sitting in the hammock, looking up at the pine trees swaying in the breeze, and the hummingbirds flying overhead. And so it's such an easy place for me to remember. The point, though, is that this is something that we try to do because we are stricken by anxiety, because we are devastated by grief, because the impact of evil has so invaded our lives that even if we can just get two minutes of imagining that we are in a different place, it's calming, it's soothing. And I'm not very mentally strong, so I can't do it for very long. I'm not very good at it. I'll get distracted or like all of a sudden something will invade that memory. This happened to me when I was doing it for baseball. I would envision myself striking a guy out. But then if you have ever seen Rookie of the Year, there's a hitter, I can't remember his name, Potato, I think. <laughs> Potato. He's this huge burly guy, and I think he plays for the White Sox or the Yankees or one of those bad teams. And he comes up to the plate and he hits a, a huge home run. Right? And so, the Mets, okay, yeah, one of those teams. <laughs> and that is what, like, that, just the, the memory or the anxiety, the insecurity that existed in my mind would kind of pierce through my ability to, like, imagine something. And then usually what you see is what happens. That's kind of the theory of it. And so, yeah, I gave up some home runs. But this is what happens to us so often, is that we are trying to produce some type of utopia, some type of safe place, a safe place where we can go and be protected from the ramifications of evil. And so you see David jumping back and forth in the psalm. You see him going to describe what it looks like but even in his descriptions of what it looks like, he's first grounding it in the reality of who God is. He's reminding himself, God, you are not a God who delights in wickedness, and evil cannot dwell with you. The boastful cannot stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the 
thirsty and deceitful man. And so David is reminding himself that even though it looks like these people, that these enemies, that the ones who are trying to attack him, even though it looks like they have free reign, he's reminding himself that they are opposing God because God is not those things. And he's given them that promise. And then in verse 9 and 10, he's showing there's no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. And then he calls for God to judge. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels because of the abundance of their transgressions. Cast them out. So this prayer, this groaning, this crying out of David is really a prayer for God to come and make his temple on earth. He's wanting God to show up and destroy and cast out and cleanse all wickedness. He's yearning for God to come to be with him in his place of suffering. But way back in the very beginning, there's a really important verse. In verse 3, O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. Before entering into kind of this back and forth, of like acknowledging the enemies and calling God to come and judge them, David approaches the Lord through a sacrifice. Because David's sin is before him. He knows that as he's praying this, unless there is a sacrifice for him, he's praying for his own destruction. Because he lied. He was bloodthirsty. He was vengeful. All of the things that he sees in his enemies, David knows that he is. And so his sacrifice is the foundation. It's the grounds for him to actually be able to approach God and not be cast out along with all of the wicked. Even he, as the anointed one, needed to be sacrificed for. And David knew that. And so now that we are interacting with this psalm, I want us to really develop the longing that all of us have for what David is talking about here. The longing that we have to enter God's house. And even if you don't believe in God, even if you're not willing to accept that any of this is actually a description of, re- of ultimate reality, I think that you can probably also connect to that longing for a place where there's no evil, a place where there's no suffering, a place where there's no death. And so I just want to challenge you, if that's you, What if there really was a place like that? And not only a place like that, but there was a way for you 
to get to that place. And we all have a similar response, I think, when we, when we imagine that place, when we imagine the purity, the beauty, the goodness of something like that, how much that would satisfy the longing of our souls, how much we would enjoy that, how rich it would be. But it seems so far away. And if we're honest with ourselves, I think we feel like it's the last place we would belong. I think about myself, like if I went to that place, I would mess it up. I would track in my dirt. It would become ruined. And that's why in verse 7, David says, But I, the anointed king of Israel, through the abundance of your steadfast love, enter your house. It's a way of David confessing that I don't have the right to go there. I have not earned my place in that place. I have not earned my seat at God's table. It's only because of the abundance of his steadfast love that he has shown me that I can go there. It's only because I've received a gift of grace that I can bow down in that place. And so there's a way, there's a doorway that opens up. And it's David realizing it's through the promise of God. It's through his promise to me that I can enter that place. It's through his promise to me that I can pray this prayer. And it's interesting because in verse 11, all of a sudden, it's the same kind of setup, but I, but in verse 11, it's but let all. And so something happens between verse 7 and verse 11. Because now the promise has just expanded. It's grown. There's more people who are laying claim to this promise, to this way into God's holy place. And that is one of the differences, one of the beautiful differences between us and David. David had received a promise that one day there would be one of his descendants who would be the anointed one. And he would sit on an eternal throne. And David kind of refers to that promise as God's steadfast love, but it's abstract. It's like one day that'll happen. And he had to really hold on to the promise without the reality. But we can read the psalm and we can see the abundance of God's steadfast love in a person, in a life, in a human who walked on this earth, who ultimately laid down his life, who became the sacrifice that was offered for David, for you, for me, for all 
who take refuge in God. And in this moment of David's life, David's learning something very important about the character of God and God's love. Because David is in the process of losing a son who hates him, who wants to destroy him. The father-son bond has been stretched as much as it possibly can be at this point. I honestly don't know how David still cares about Absalom at all. He suffered so much because of him, but there's still like a tiny strand connecting him, so much so that when Absalom finally does die, and it wasn't David who killed him, but it was Absalom running into his continued rebellion that ends up costing him his own life. David cries out. And David's men had been rejoicing because Absalom was dead. But then they see David and they start mourning with him because they realize even though great blessing had come because Absalom was no longer pursuing David, it had cost him his son. David's learning about the character of God because God also gave his son. But it was different. It wasn't a rebel that he, gave, that he lost. It wasn't one who had earned destruction that died. It was the only human who's ever lived a perfect, holy, righteous life before God. It was the only one who actually belonged in the Lord's house, who willingly left it and subjected himself to great suffering. So David's learning about how much God must love this world to lose a son like that, to give willingly a son like that. How much he must love you to offer that son to you. Your life might be chaotic. You might be filled with anxiety. You might be hardened towards sin in your life. You might be experiencing something that you wish was a nightmare but you keep waking up to it. This prayer that David offered in the same context that you're experiencing, it has been answered. It's been answered. And it continues to be answered as the work of Christ, as the sacrifice, continues to come to fruition in this world, in your own life. And so we are used to kind of like this instant gratification, and we often approach prayer like that. Like, I pray God answers in that moment, and there we go. We keep it moving. And if he doesn't answer, it didn't work, or God's not real. But when you look at this prayer offered hundreds of years before the answer finally came, you see God's patience. You see his 
perfect stability of answering this prayer and answering it in Jesus. And so here is what I've been wrestling with in this psalm. I've been wrestling with the fact that this week, as my grandma has continued to get old, she can't live in that cabin anymore. And it's up for sale. That place, that place where I felt just a little glimmer of what it means to be in a holy place, to be in a protected place, to be in a safe place. The ramifications of sin, the great ramification of sin, which is death, is having its way with that place too. And so my encouragement to you all that I've been reminding myself of as I've been grieving that and just kind of like, what is this? Is there anywhere here? Is that, no, there is nowhere on this earth that you can put your hope in. Nowhere on this earth will be safe for you. But if you come in to God's holy temple through his son, every place on this earth is that place. Because you, like David, have received a promise of a future coming king. That the very same person, the very same human that first opened up this way for you to dwell with God, he's coming back. And when he returns the entire universe becomes this place. It becomes a place where there's no evil. All of God's enemies who would see destruction and death infect the good creation that God has made will be permanently expelled. Where we'll dwell in unity as God's people where we will bow down towards God's holy temple. And in the temple, there's an altar, and on the altar, there's a lamb, and on the lamb, there is the sign of God's covenant promises to us as he's alive, living, ruling, reigning. And we will sing for joy. And the righteousness of God will cover us as a shield as we take shelter in Jesus. So for all of us who have received that promise, who understand how God has answered David's prayer here, we now live our lives in a way that's anticipating that coming, anticipating that answered promise. And we're living also in a way that shows the world that God's promise is the only place to be. And that there is a way that he has opened up into that place. And it's through his son. It's through receiving him who is offered to you. There's no restriction there. That all is universal. Let all who take refuge in Jesus rejoice. No restriction to coming to him, to receiving from him, to being blessed by him. You just have to trust him. So trust him. 
If it's for the first time or the millionth, continue to trust him. Take refuge in the blood of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these promises. We thank you for showing us your son, Lord. As we read this psalm, it's amazing to think that all those years later, the birth of an obscure child in an obscure place to an obscure couple was the answer to your king's pleading with you. That you have shown us your steadfast love. You have shown us the abundance of your grace. And so, Lord, we rejoice. Your people, we rejoice because we have received it. Because you have brought us into your dwelling place, a place where we can receive from you all of the goodness of who you are. We thank you that you are a God who gives himself to his people. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.